0: I was thinking a lot this week about what it means to be new in Christ and just the concept of newness in general. And one of the things that came across my mind was the fact that, especially at Christmas time, one of the great joys of my life is to be able to be in our family room together and as that Christmas tree is decorating that room, To be able, over the last several years as a father, to see our children become so excited about those gifts that are under that tree. And for me, as I thought about it, I thought about the idea that for, for those kids, it's not just what's in those packages that is exciting and refreshing and dynamic. It's really just the concept that whatever is there for them is new. You know, they get that little glimmer in their eye. They have that excitement. And, of course, our boys uh, rip those packages open and throw away all of the trimmings. And, of course, Mom is always saying, no, 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 let me keep that bow, let me keep that bow. And the girls are daintily taking all of it off, taking all of their time. You know all the differences. And I was thinking about that and thinking, boy, as a father, that is one of the greatest joys in life. Not just what they receive, but just the fact that what they're receiving is new, brand new. And then I started thinking about other things that remind me of newness. I remember back to the time when we received our van. You know, the 12 passenger church bus that we have that's out there in the parking lot, for those of you who don't know, we have seven children, and when we secured that van with those 12 passenger seats in there, I remember picking it up and taking that key and putting it into ignition and turning it on and driving home with an excitement and an exuberance that when I drove into the driveway that all of those kids would be running out to that van. And they would just be overjoyed and awed by the newness of that brand new vehicle. And of course, as every faithful father, as soon as they all piled in, I said, Now listen, for the rest of your lives there will be no eating in this van. Which, as you also know, by the second day was the biggest pipe dream in all the world. immediately began to live in that van just like they live in our house, but just to see on their faces the newness of it all. It's just one of the greatest joys in life. And the same thing happens for all of us, even as adults. When we receive something new or we acquire something new or we think about a new baby in the house or we think about a new relative or someone or something that presents to us the newness of life, It's just really overwhelming, just joyous. As I thought about all of those things new, I thought about what Paul says here in Colossians 3. You remember last week, if you were here, we discussed what we might consider some very, very negative things about the old world, the old life. Verses 5 to 9 of Colossians 3, we had to talk about those things. They were old And yet sometimes those old things sort of hang on us like dirty old clothes and we want to strip them away and we want to get rid of them so that we might put on the new. You know, like going to a store and being given a gift or a gift certificate so that you can buy a new suit. And that's what we want as Christians. We want to be able to be clothed with new things. Fresh, clean, wonderful and that is what Paul tells us this morning. He says in Colossians three ten that if you're a Christian, if you've been redeemed, if you're born again, you, by the very nature of what that means, have put on the new man. That's really a synonymous term for what it means to be a Christian. We, we should probably even use that. Instead of maybe saying to other people when they ask or we tell them our testimony, I'm a Christian, or I'm a follower of Christ, or I've been born again, You ought to sometimes say to them, I'm part of the new man. The old man has passed away, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the new creation has come and I'm a part of it. That's what Paul says. You have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says, just like he's describing some new shoes or a new pair of socks or a new pair of flacks or a new jacket or a new belt, here are the new items that should be clothing the new man. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, just like a pair of new slacks, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And like a pair of new shoes, bear with one another and forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. He says, beyond all these things, verse 14, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And then just like those new clothes are metaphorically now a part of your life, he's saying there's some more items that are to be a part of the new man. Verse 18, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. He even talks about the new man's new clothes. In verse 22, when he talks about employee-employer relationships, slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong, will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. He even has a word to the masters who are new men in Christ. Employers. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. From Colossians 3.10 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, this is really a single thought. One paragraph... That describes what it means to be a new man and one who begins in that new man status to wear new clothes. Like going to the store and buying something that's fresh and new or going to the lot in the car place and taking all of the looks that you can look and finding that fresh new vehicle for your family. He says there are must also be some things that characterize this new man. It's not just that your status has changed from the old life, it's that you must clothe yourselves now with some more things, some things that make you look like a new man. And we'll be going through this in much detail in the coming weeks. It'll take us some time to get through chapter 3, verse 10, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, but it's going to be great. We're going to find out What is the new clothing items of the new man? We're going to look at two this morning. Verses 10 and 11. This is what Paul says is the first clothing item of the new man. Verse 10. He says, and you have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to, to the image of the one who created him. This is what Paul is saying in verse 10. If it's true of me that I'm the new man in Christ, if old things have passed away, if new things have come, if I've been created by Jesus Christ to ultimately one day place my faith in Him, what is my life going to look like? If I say I'm new, what is the new man's characteristics? What are his desires? What are his habits? What does he look like? Paul says in verse 10, I'll tell you what he's going to look like. The very first thing that a new man should clothe himself with is to clothe himself in his thoughts. A renewal of his thoughts. The very first thing that could change about you as a Christian is your thinking. That's what Paul says in verse 10. Notice how he says it. He says, past tense, you have put on the new man. That is a past reality, a past fact. But even though that is a past reality, even though that has happened that has happened to someone who is a Christian in the past, there are new characteristics. There is something that is happening now as a process. That's why he changes his tense. In verse 10 to say, he has put on the new man, but he is being renewed to a true knowledge. And that beautifully brings together what is commonly called my justification, my being made initially right with God, and my sanctification. That is the process of spiritual growth. Paul says, what happened to you in the past was this. You came to faith in Christ. You were redeemed. You were bought with a price. You placed your faith in Christ. He forgave you of your sins. That is a fact that is beyond questioning. You can have the assurance that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been saved. But, even though that is true, and even though it is true that you are new in Christ, if you've come to him, even though you're new, you're not totally new. You're not completely new. You're not fully new, as though the moment you came to Christ in salvation, you could be immediately ushered into heaven and spend time worshiping and praising Jesus Christ face to face. No. There's a parenthesis. There's a gap in between. There's a gap in between your salvation and your glorification when you meet Christ and worship Him forever. And that gap, that parenthesis, is what we call the doctrine of spiritual growth. And this is what we're all going through. If you're here, if you're hearing my voice, if you're a Christian, you are going through, and I am as well, the process of spiritual growth. And that is exactly what Paul is referring to here. He may use different words and different terminology, but he's talking about our spiritual growth. And the first thing he tells us about that growth is that if you're a new man, if you've really been translated out of the realm of darkness into the realm of light, you will change in your thinking. No man can claim that they are new in Christ without their th- their thinking being radically changed. And here's the way Paul says it. You, if you're the new man, you are being renewed to a true knowledge. What does he mean? Well, he's simply saying that if you are a Christian, you will be progressively changed. You will be renewed. You have been made new, and you will be renewed throughout the rest of your Christian life. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will, what? perfect it. Will bring it to completion. Will mature it until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day you actually stand before God as a glorified human being. That's all that Paul is saying about being renewed, and he loves that word. He loves the concept of being renewed. He says in Titus 3.5 that you and I have not done anything worthy of being saved, that we did nothing on our own to merit our salvation, but He saved us not on the basis of anything that we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, He has washed us, He has cleansed us, and He is renewing us by the Holy Spirit. He's giving us not only a new heart, but He's continually renewing that new heart to the place where it will be completely new. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, though our outer man is decaying, so so this body itself is breaking down, disintegrating. Yet, our inner man, that which is the most true part of us, the spiritual dynamic of our soul, that that inner man is being renewed day by day. being renewed. And the first thing Paul says that is a part of our renewal is a renewal to a true knowledge. And that's why I said a moment ago, that when you first become a believer, your thoughts begin to change. Harken back to the time when you first came to Christ. For some of us, it's many, many years ago. For some of us, it may be very recent. But remember all of your thoughts. Remember all of those things that you were thinking about as a habit, as a characteristic of your life. You were tempted to sin, and you did sin. You were tempted to think evil thoughts, and you did think them. Now think of your salvation and think of what Christ now has done in you and what He's continuing to do to renew your thoughts, to challenge your mind to think about things differently. He's given you the Word of God. He's given you the people of God. He's given you the Spirit of God to continue the process of spiritual renewal, to take the spiritual principles of the Word of God and to translate them very practically into the very way you think usually, Paul does, a very interesting way of stating it. He says, a true knowledge. you know that the only true knowledge in this life is the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Oh, it may be true that we can comprehend or apprehend a few thoughts and facts here and there about our universe and maybe discovering some true principles regarding arithmetic or uh, gravity or something like that, but that's not a true knowledge. Now, the true knowledge that Paul is talking about here is about the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and who we are in light of the knowledge of Christ. That is why Paul continually tells the believers to whom he's writing that you must be renewed. He says it many times. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he says to the Ephesians. He says to the Romans in Romans 12:2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If there's anything true, beloved, about the Christian life, it is this, your thinking has changed. Is the dilemma. Even though your thinking has changed, your thinking hasn't completely changed. And that's the process of the Christian life. I'm a part of the new man because... Christ gave me a new heart in order for my thinking to be changed. But the dilemma in the Christian life is that my thinking hasn't completely changed. And so the process of the spiritual pilgrimage we call the Christian life is that my thinking must progressively change by the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. It is a true mind. And if Paul were to say to us, And he has, through this passage, just as he did the Colossians. Paul, if if you were to pick out what that true knowledge would really look like, if I could see it in a person, if I could see it lived out, if I could see a model, an example, a pattern, what would it look like? Notice what he says in verse 10. You put on the new man, past tense, who is being presently renewed to a true knowledge according to to the image of the One who created Him. In other words, God created you, and when He created you, He created you with the capacity to live, to learn, and to think just like Jesus Christ. Now that, my friends, is what we would say in our modern-day vernacular, a mind-blower. You mean to tell me that God created created every human being with the capacity to live and to think and to love and to act just like Jesus Christ? Yes. The capacity is there. The reality isn't. Because as Adam fell in sin and therefore plunged the whole human race into sin, we now think directly opposite of the person of Christ because of the sinful nature that is within us. But when we come to Christ, from the created order, we then are being renewed, retained. There's a reclamation going on, and what is happening is the capacity that I was created with is now, for the first time in my life, available to me. That is why as Christians in our thinking, when we are tempted to sin now, we, for the first time in our lives, as new Christians, can say, no, I shouldn't do that. That's a sin. That's a temptation for which I must avoid at all costs. I can't be doing that. That's against Christ. That's against the Word. I I can't respond in that way. You know, the only reason that that is true of you or me is because we now have been renewed in Christ. We would have never had the capacity to say that before. In fact, we wouldn't even have had those thoughts. But now, we do. And when we do, the more we grow in Christ, the more we will be renewed into the image of the one who created us. Boy, what a glorious thought. How many of you want to look and live and love like Jesus Christ? It is. It is a thought beyond all thoughts that it could be true of me, even as a sinful human being, that I would be made more progressively like Jesus Christ. Okay it. It's a shouting word. It's every opportunity, Paul says, as the new man, that you can now be renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him." And you know what image means? It means likeness. It means patterns. It means type. It means that you and I can live under the icon of Christ. We can be like Him. We will be like Him, not in the sense that He is God and we will become one, but we will become like Him in the sense that we will take on the very characteristics of Christ himself. Does not Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2, that we as Christians have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the ability to think like Christ. And that's what Paul says is new of us. And beloved, the illustration I gave you at the beginning of the message about that which is new under the Christmas tree, for old and young alike, or that which you're able to do when you drive off the lot with the new van, that pales, my friends, in comparison with the opportunity to be be made new in Christ and to be made more progressively newer in Christ. There's no comparison. You talk about the glisten in your eye and the happiness in your heart for being created and renewed in Christ to the very image of the One who created us. That's almost... Beyond comprehension. I think that's probably what motivates Paul sometimes when he says, neither ear has heard, neither eye has seen what has been created for those who love him. We don't even know the half of it now. I mean, we're still dealing with our sin, right? We're still dealing with our hard hearts and our sinful conduct and our wrong thinking. And he says, but listen, if you would be patient, if you would use the resources available to you, you would begin progressively to learn what it's like to be what you ultimately will be in heaven when all of that sin has been jettisoned from your life. Boy, what a thought. According to the image of the one who created him. And you say, well, if it's like Christ, will it be like God? What does Paul say about Christ in Colossians 1.15? He is the image of the invisible God. We can be like Christ. Christ is God we can actually take on godly characteristics. We can be renewed. That's the first thing that happens. The first thing. Number two. There's a second thing that happens to the new man in Christ. And if that weren't enough, if it weren't enough that our thinking could change and that we could be made more progressively like Jesus Christ, notice what Paul says in verse 11. He's still talking about this renewal, and he says, This renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, between circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says there's a second thing that happens to the new man. You're a Christian. The fundamental thing that happens is your thinking is going to begin to change. And the very first place that your thinking is going to manifest itself in that change is in your relationship. In your relationship. My thinking is going to change, and then my relationship. You say, how so? Is what Paul says. He says, what is going to happen in your relationship to each other in the local church A part of the body of Christ is this. There will now be no distinction between Greek and Jew, or Jew and Gentile. Here's what he says. Your thinking of the true knowledge of Christ will so change your life that relationally you will be able as the body of Christ to transcend all racial barriers. Now, beloved, if that doesn't fit our culture, I don't know what else does. If you are the new man in Christ, Paul says, it's not only going to change your thinking, but it's going to change the very relationships that you have. And the first item up for bid is the relationship that you have with someone who is very different than you are. And in this case, in Paul's culture, he says, between Jew and Gentile. Now you know if you know the New Testament at all and if you've studied at all this concept, you know that Jews and Gentiles did not want to have anything to do with each other, right? It might even be today that some Jews don't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. In fact, they might even say, I don't because it's not kosher. I don't want to have anything to do with non Jews. And so you have sex, you have entities, you have people group who are doing their best to stay within their own walls, their own barriers, and not to be able to associate with anyone outside. So that was very true of Paul's time. Very true. Paul comes along, and he says, but wait a minute. If Jesus Christ is our all in all, then at least in the church, regardless of what's happening in the society, there should be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That is abolished. Notice how he says it. He says there is no distinction. Literally, there is not or there does not exist any distinction whatsoever. It's a very strong word. He's saying there cannot be. Why? Well, if we're supposed to be a light that is shining brightly for the world to see, and if the world is keeping their distance from each other racially, what should we do? We should be so different from those people in the world that we have racial harmony, not racial disharmony, whether it's Jew or Gentile or whatever. I remember, in fact, my mother and I, who's here this morning, talked about this some time ago, and it refreshed me again about this experience that I had. We were talking about the fact that when I was in junior high, uh, in Van Buren, Arkansas, that... I was playing junior high football at Izzard County Elementary School and junior high. And when I was playing football, I became friends with a man who was black. And because my mother had always taught me that there was no racial disharmony at all for anyone, I began a friendship with this man. And as junior highers, We would want to spend time together. You know how it is when your kids come home and they say, Mom, Dad, I want so-and-so to come over to the house. It sometimes means that three or four people come trailing behind. And it ends up being a party. Well, this man I wanted to have some extra time with, and so I invited him to spend the night over my house. Well, you wouldn't believe the tremendous tension that apparently in our culture that created, for which I was totally unaware I was spoken to very harshly by other people asking me the question, why would you let a black man sleep in your house? Now remember, this was at a time, because I'm an old fellow, where racial tensions were not what they are today. They were much worse. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is cruel. This is just another human being. This, this is just a, a person who who is like me. He, he has eyes and ears and arms and legs like me. It's just that his, that his skin is a different color. I, I don't understand. And as a junior high boy, you, you could readily understand how difficult that may be. In fact, unfortunately, I had to move away from, from Van Buren. We moved away to a different city. and I had the opportunity, I'm sure our friendship would have grown and grown because in high school, he became a star and later then became a star at the University of Arkansas as a running back. His name is Mark Douglas. And I remember fondly thinking about Mark. He was a sweet man. He, he was a man who wanted to have relationships with anybody regardless of the color of their skin. That's exactly what Paul was saying. If you're new in Christ, does it really matter what the color of another person's skin is? No. Does it even matter that they are different than we are? No. What matters is Christ. Christ is all in all. Paul even said it this way in Romans chapter 3 about the Jew and Gentile issue. Probably as simply yet profoundly stated as this. Romans 3.29 Or oh, is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Well, so what would the Jews say? No, no, he's not the God of the Gentiles. He's only the God of the Jews. Paul comes along and says, no, he is the God of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised, that's Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's non-Jews, through faith, is one. We're all together. Wouldn't it be a tremendous testimony if we as a church body had all kinds of different colors and hues and thinking? So that the world could look at us and say, there's no racial insensitivity there. That seems to be a hot topic in our day, doesn't it? I also remember my time when I did move away to a different city and I went to Luxora High School in Luxora, Arkansas on the complete opposite side of the state. And when I graduated, I graduated with a graduating class, listen to this, 36 people. And when I did, I graduated with a graduating class that was 90% black. It was my white face, my white cousin, and two other white people. The rest were black. And there were times where there was racial tension there as well, and even times where we were attacked. I was even attacked one time physically, that I remember. And it was because of the color of my skin. And I received what you might call reverse discrimination at that point. But you know, I'm sure that one reason God did that in my life was to show me, at least in some small measure, what those people have experienced over much of their life. And that was a tremendous and valuable lesson, even though it's not one that I would have likely wanted to revisit time and time again. But I'll tell you this, when those things stick in your mind, they echo when you read words like this, there is no distinction between Greek and Jews. There's no racial barriers. And not only does he talk about racial barriers, but he talks about religious barriers. You see the next phrase? Circumcised and uncircumcised. He's simply talking about those who are a part of the, the in crowd, those who have been followers of Jehovah and those who are not. Those who've been physically circumcised, which automatically for many of them meant that they were in, and those who were not physically circumcised, which they, the circumcised, automatically assumed that they were out. And Paul comes along, and that's why he had such a problem with the Judaizers of his day, those who believed it was Christ plus circumcision. He came along and said, I'm here to tell you that because of Jesus Christ, there is now absolutely nothing to being circumcised or uncircumcised. What the issue is is faith in Christ. Now you know why Paul was stoned and left at the end of the city for dead. Because to come along like that as a crusader for Christ and say there is now no distinction whatsoever between those who are circumcised and those who are not, the issue is faith in Christ. That was inflammatory. That was... That was not good. In fact, Paul, to the very ones who were promoting such a thing, said in Galatians some very, very critical words. Galatians 5.6 For in Christ Jesus, notice these words, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Well, what would a circumcised Jewish person do with that? you mean to tell me that all that I was thinking on before, Paul, is now of no avail? That I must place my faith in Jesus Christ? And to top it off, once I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to hobnob and fellowship with uncircumcised people? That's too much. That's too much for me to bear. But Paul says the issue, my friends, is Christ. It's Christ alone. It's faith in Christ, and it is faith, working, through love. This is, this is really a passage on love, isn't it? This is loving other people, even people who are different than I am. We even have that difference in the Bible, church, don't we? We have those who are highly educated. We have those who have received little education. We have those who wear, at least as our culture defines it, nice clothes. We have those who will wear clothes that other people might look a stance on. We have those in our fellowship who count themselves as socially able. We have those in our fellowship who might presume of themselves that they are not socially able. We have all kinds of mixes, all kinds of thinking, all kinds of races, all kinds of people. But the issue for all of us is not where we've been, but where we are. Are we in Christ? And if we're in Christ, faith, working through love, allows us to transcend anything and everything because our focus is on Christ, not ourselves. He also talked about cultural barriers. Look what he says. He says, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, that's racial. Circumcision and uncircumcision, that's religious. And then he says, barbarian, Scythian. You say, you've read that several times and you've read Colossians 3. What in the world is a Scythian? Well, it's very simple. The Greeks of that time believed they were the in crowd. They had the knowledge. They had all of the things, the literature, the theaters. They had everything down pat. And they thought everybody else who was a non-Greek kind of person was, in their definition, a barbarian. That's probably where we receive that phrase when we talk about someone who seems to be uncouth. We say, they're acting like a barbarian. Well, that's exactly what the Greeks said. They said, everybody who's non-Greek, everybody who doesn't speak the Greek language, well, they're barbarians. Somebody who was unintelligent, someone who was inarticulate, someone who was a stammerer, someone who was to be avoided at all costs. And even more so, he even uses the word Scythian, and that was on the lowest rung of the ladder. I mean, it was one thing to be a Greek. It was another thing to be a barbarian, and it was another thing to be a Scythian. That was just above what people considered wild beasts. And Paul says, even on what might be perceived in your culture as the lowest possible scum or dregs of the earth in somebody's estimation, in Christ there is no distinction. This is a commentary on our day. This is a commentary on the social mores and methodologies of so many people and their thinking. And as it is true of so many other things, does it not invade the church? Does not? those thoughts and those methods and those predilections and those presuppositions and those prejudices all somehow tend to infect the church? It shouldn't. It shouldn't if Christ is our focus. In fact, what I should be doing in the church with my brothers and sisters is looking right past who they are right to Christ, right? I should look right past the color of their skin Right past where they come from religiously, right past where they might be culturally, right to Christ He is standing right beside them. And he says there are social barriers for which there is no distinction. He uses the phrase slaves and freemen. That would have been a biggie, wouldn't it? That was a biggie in that time. Slaves and freemen. Slaves were treated very poorly free men who owned those slaves, they were treated like royalty. And now here comes a man like Paul who says, do you realize that I'm trying to tell you that every single aspect of society in the church in terms of those barriers have been obliterated? He even says in First Corinthians chapter 7 some words about being a slave or a free man that are absolutely crucial. I want you to turn there because they very much hit at some of the issues in our own day. First Corinthians chapter 7. I wish I would have been a Christian and I wish I would have known this passage when I dealt with someone in that junior high time frame. Because this is exactly what Paul is saying. He even begins to say in verse 17, only... As the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. So I direct in all the churches. In other words, if you came to Christ as a slave, stay a slave. If you came to Christ as a free man, stay a free man. If you came to Christ as a single person, stay a single person. If you came to Christ as a married person, stay a married person. If you came to Christ as a widow, stay a widow. Because your station in life is not the issue. The issue is, have you come to Christ? He says, verse 18, "...was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised." In other words, that's not the issue. Faith working through love is the issue. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Whether you have been called as a free man or a slave, in fact, he says, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping of the commandments of God." Now oh, you know why he was such an unpopular fellow. Can you imagine Paul writing a speech in the local synagogue saying, Beloved, uncircumcision is nothing. And all of the Jewish people say, Amen, Amen. And then he says, By the way, circumcision is also nothing. Mm. What? This is our religion. This is our heritage. You're telling me it's nothing? He says, I'll tell you even more. Each man, verse 20, must remain in that condition in which he was called. You say, even slavery? Come on, that's a social evil. It must be obliterated. What does he say in verse 21? Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. What's he saying? Well, if you've come to Christ and if your master's a Christian and your master says, I want you to serve the Lord fully. I don't want you to work for me anymore. I want you to be freed up. You're no longer my slave. Serve Christ as a free man. What did Paul say? Do it. Do it. But don't be bound up in that. Don't give your life for that. Don't assume that you can't work for the Lord in this case. He says in verse 22, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. In other words, you may be a slave on this earth, but you're free in Christ. You're the Lord's freedman. What? likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Hey, so listen, if you're the boss, you can't treat slavery in such a despicable way because you have to realize this, that if you have a slave who's a Christian, and you must treat him fairly because your master in heaven is watching. Which is exactly what Paul says in Colossians 3. Masters, watch out. Don't treat these Christians, these brothers in Christ who happen to be your slaves in an unworthy manner because your master in heaven is watching. You see, you can can get along in any aspect of church life regardless of your condition. That's the whole point. F.F. Bruce says it this way. I love it. Outside the Christian fellowship, those barriers stood as high as ever. And there were Christians on the one side and on the other. From the viewpoint of the old order, the old life, the old man, these Christians were classified in terms of their position on this side or that of the barriers. If if you were someone who looked down on someone else, the social world told you that's good. That's good to keep up those walls. But within the community of the new creation, being in Christ, these barriers were irrelevant. All the walls had come down, smashed by Christ. Indeed, they had no existence. This is a message for our day, my friends. We should have no racial, religious, social, or cultural barriers whatsoever. Because if we're trying to witness to the world in that way, how much greater is our witness if we show people in the church how to love, how to live, how to act, how to serve And then Paul says, the most important issue of all is that Christ is all and in all. He's driving this point home and he uses that tremendously inclusive word all. It is not racial, religious, cultural or social it isn't any of that the distinctions are over what is important for every member of the body of Christ is that Christ is all and in all if he's in you you can't act like that because that's not how Christ acts remember when Christ went to go see the woman at the well he had purposed to evangelize the lost and the strategy of the day if you were a Jew was to go right around Samaria right? what did Christ do? He went right through Samaria, and then this woman at the well said, What are you doing? You're a Jew. How can you be doing this? This is not what your people do. And it is as Christ were to say to her, I'm not like those people. I've come to tell you about the fountain of living water. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what your racial issue is. I don't care what your cultural barriers are. I don't care about any of that. What I care is that you as a human being have been created in the image of God and my business with you is to renew you to the image of the one who created you. Why? Because Christ is in all. Christ is all. Think of it as we close this morning. Think of it. Think of that phrase. Let it mull over in your mind. Christ is all and in all. Is Christ all to you? Christ all to you today? Do you look past people when you look at the person of Christ? Or do you get hung up on what their skin colour is, on where they come from and their socioeconomic condition? Do you have problems with what they wear? Uh, do you look a stance at who they are and where they come from? Look past them folks to Christ. Christ is all and in all. It's almost as though that phrase were put there by Paul as a as a banner. Christ is all and in all. Last night when I was meditating on this passage, I kept in my mind thinking, Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. Christ is all. Christ is everything to me. He's everything to me that everything is that is important. Why should I get hung up with who and what other people are or do to me? Beloved, as an act of my will, I will never become angry or bitter at any of you for any reason, no matter what you do to me. And I don't want you to become embittered or angry at anything I might do because we are serving Christ working by faith through love. Is it really important some of the things that we deem as so incredibly important that we we would treat each other in such a way? Christ is all and in all. Last night I came to the place where with tears in my eyes and tears flowing down my face, I said to myself, Christ is all in and all. Christ is all that we need. Why should we come to the place where anything about someone's life, their thinking, their behavior, their character could ever make me not want to love them and to serve them and to be all for them that they must be for Christ? If we're talking about fellow members of the body of Christ, how could we not love them as Christ loved them and gave himself for them? Self-saving? Folks, we have such a sickled society around us that we will leave at a moment's notice and we will take off when the heat is there or when there's preaching that is convicting or when people hold each other accountable. We must not do it. We must say to each other, Christ is all and in all and I'm committed for the long haul is Christ committed to us in that way? Will He say to us at any time, I walked away from you now? And he said, for you, my God. No matter what color you skin, no matter where you've been, no matter what job you have, no matter what you have as an educational opportunity or not, Christ is all in in all. That's just everything. It's our goal, our focus our design, our desire, our Redeemer, our friend. Why should we ever look at each other with anything but love and affirmation? You say, even when they sin against me, even when they do things that should not be done, even when they sin against me grievously, yes, and a thousand times yes. Because Christ redeemed all of us from the curse of the law. He took all of that sin to Calvary. And for us, There should be no reason whatsoever that we shouldn't look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they do things that we do not appreciate. We should go to them. We should talk with them. We should work it out. We should labor and strive according to the power that is within us so that we might be those who are emblematic of the Christ we say we serve. He is all in all. Bow your heads with me this morning. Christ is all in all. Paul, because he cuts across so much of the stuff of the world. Father, thank you for giving us this tremendous letter, for showing us that there cannot be any clothes that the new man wears that are stained and tattered and torn from the old life and from an old way of thinking. You've given us a new heart and now you're fitting us for new clothes. As an act of our will, may we put them on, may we say to each other, regardless of the relationships I have or don't have, I am committed to being what I must be for those in my relationship with them because Christ is all and in all. Oh Lord, thank you for this. beautiful and glorious morning in which we've been convicted, all of us, myself included, about the need to accept one another. Even in the hard times, even in the difficult times, even in the times where there's misunderstanding and confusion. Christ is all in all. Let's rally around Christ, and His name we praise. Amen.